Romance Mythology, an introduction to Dante's Divine Comedy by Gil Bailey, narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum, Part 1. We are going to be looking at Romance Mythology in two or three of its manifestations. Today, not so much Romance Mythology as such. That more is for next week. But we're going to be studying this whole area as an introduction to the Divine Comedy so that we will be looking at it with a specific tilt towards our exploration. So I'd like to start with a mixed metaphor, and that is that all great temples, cathedrals, mosques have elaborate foyers or vestibules or entranceways. And these elaborate entranceways are theologically and psychologically as well as architecturally functional, which is to say that as one enters in, the nature of the entranceway begins to prepare one emotionally and spiritually for what's to happen later on inside. And so I was thinking of our sessions together on Romance Mythology as a kind of vestibule to Dante. But then it occurred to me that Dante wrote his own vestibule, uh, which we're not likely to improve upon, uh, which is in the Inferno itself. And maybe that's not completely an apt metaphor. And then I also realized, and here's where the mixed metaphor comes in, that what we will be exploring by exploring Romantic mythology is not the entranceway to the cathedral that is the Divine Comedy. By the way, many people have observed that it is a cathedral with gargoyles and and venerated holy ones and, and inner sanctums and all that. But what we will be studying through Romantic mythology is not the, the vestibule, but the engine room, because it is, in fact, Romantic mythology, which is the spiritual engine of Dante's whole life, and certainly the Divine Comedy. In stark distinction from the elaborate and often stylized vestibule, the engine room is a messy place. There are strange noises going on, it's unswept and unkept, and that's the kind of world we will find as we go into Romantic mythology. We, I hope we will not come out of the next few weeks with some kind of clarity on Romance mythology. The purpose of our sessions is something much more interesting than that. Well, it's a very Dantean thing to do to place above the, the journey we're about to take some, some slogans, some reminders, some warnings, some admonitions. And I have several I'd like to sort of hang above the tour we're about to take. And the first one is from Gregory of Nyssa, a 4th century theologian, who said, Concepts create idols. Only wonder comprehends anything. So we'll approach uh, Romance mythology looking for its wonder, not for its answer. And so we will try to bring us from wherever we are with it to a place of wonder. Some of us have figured it out. We have psychological theories or sociological theories or biological theories or whatever that have figured it out, and so we don't have any trouble with it. But we're not in a state of wonder with it. There are others of us who are so totally confused and bewildered and sometimes hurt and overwhelmed by it that we haven't had time to wonder about it. We're too much in the grips of it. So what I'd like to have us do in the next few weeks is to supply just enough confusion to those who already know 
and just enough clarity to those who are totally confused to bring us all into a state of wonder about what this strange thing is. So that we might join, finally, Carl Jung, who in Memories, Dreams, and Reflections concluded a brief discussion of love with these words. I falter before the task of finding the language which might adequately express the incalculable paradoxes of love. So we will try to join Jung in that wonder. Well, we will need to do poet's work in order to get into that wonder, even though we'll occasionally be using, we'll be exploiting scholarly work. We don't want to do scholarly work with it. We want to do poet's work with it because where we want to get to is wonder. But we'll occasionally take advantage of some of the existing scholarly stuff. We might well start with a kind of poetic scholar, a man named Owen Barfield. I've quoted him here before often. He writes this. There are two distinct intellectual genealogies. On the one hand, Bacon, Descartes, Newton, Lyle, Darwin, Freud, and the reductionism which has finally succeeded in reducing the humanity of gender to the explicit animalism of sex. On the other, what? Pythagoras, Platonism, Sufism, Dante, the Fidele d'Amore of Renaissance Italy, the Rosa Alchemica, the Rosicrucian Impulse, Hermeticism, Romanticism, things we have to dig for rather than having them thrown at our heads. So it's the things that we have to dig for that we'll be digging for. Primary among the things I want to set over our task this morning is a six-line passage from Theodore Repke. But I want to quote this as a remarkable invitation to this study in that it will focus our undertaking for the next few weeks and also in that in these six lines, the poet has captured the central mystery of the first 45 years of Dante's life in six lines, or perhaps the whole of his life. And they are these. Between such animal and human heat, I find myself perplexed. What is desire? The impulse to make someone else complete? That woman would set sodden straw on fire. Was I the servant of a sovereign wish or a ladle rattling in an empty dish? Now that is the question that haunted Dante his whole life. And the Divine Comedy is his answer to it. Well, I would like to take a few snapshots or freeze frames to try to get a sense of a cultural condition that we are surrounded by today. And I admit that these are highly selective quotations. But I've wanted to bring a few things to try to give us at least a hint of the historical and cultural circumstances of the present moment. Next week we will look a little more back into the origin of the passionate romantic mythology per se. But today, at the beginning at least, to just get a sense of the cultural containment. Now first I want to read Toynbee, Arnold Toynbee. And Toynbee is writing, book came out in the 40s. Uh, he, he's still able to speak of Western Christendom, although he knew at the time that, that, that he was among the last people writing to be able to use that term with any 
coherence. But he speaks of it, and he speaks of what he calls, quote, the form in which this culture has been processed for export. And he makes the following observations. I'd love to read this to you because Toynbee is a tremendous writer. He is outrageously spare in the use of his commas, however. So one can have trouble keeping up with him, as you'll find out in a minute. Here's what I want to read to you. About the turn of the 17th and 18th centuries of our Western Christian era, something happened which I venture to prophesy is going to loom out in retrospect as one of the epic-making events in our modern Western history, when this local history is seen in its true light as an incident in the general history of mankind. This portent was a double event in which the Jesuits' failure was accentuated by the Royal Society's simultaneous success. The Jesuits failed to convert the Hindus and Chinese to the Roman Catholic form of Western Christianity. In the same generation, these tragically frustrated missionaries, fellow Catholics and Protestants at home, came to the hazardous conclusion that a religion in whose now divided and contentious name they had been fighting an inconclusive fratricidal Hundred Years' War was an inopportune element in their cultural heritage. Why not tacitly agree to cut out the wars of religion by cutting out religion itself and concentrate on the application of physical science to practical affairs, a pursuit which aroused no controversy and which promised to be lucrative? This 17th century turning in the road of Western progress was big with consequences. For the Western civilization that has since run like wildfire around the world has not been the whole of the seamless web. It has been a flare of cotton waste, a technological selvage with the religious centerpiece torn out. Well, I want to read that to you because it's wonderfully said, and also because the implication of it, or the explication of it, is that there is no center to the culture in, in the form in which it is now being exported. And, of course, we are all exporting it because there is no indigenous version of it anymore. That there's no center to it. That there is a vacuum at the center. Well, now... Nature, not only naturally but theologically, abhors a vacuum. So one wonders, has anything been sucked into the vacuum to replace Christianity as the center of the cultural enterprise? A lot of people have speculated on this. Uh, speculation in the 20th centuries, for some very obvious historical reasons, has run in the direction of politics. Albert Camus has a long essay called The Rebel in which he explores the same theme which is stated by Thomas Mann in one of the shortest sentences Thomas Mann ever wrote, in which he said, In our time, the destiny of man presents its meaning in political terms. So he and many other 20th century intellectuals began to see as the uh, pilot light began to flicker under the sanctuary, the flame starts to heat up under the political life. And they make the conclusion that there is a kind of transference going on there. 
So Thomas Mann says, in our time, the destiny of man presents its meaning in political terms, and William Butler Yeats reads that and appends a poem to that statement as a retort to it. Here's what Yeats wrote. How can I, that girl standing there, my attention fix on Roman or on Russian or on Spanish politics? Yet there's a traveled man who knows what he talks about, and there's a politician that has read and thought, and maybe what they say is true of wars and wars' alarms, but oh, that I were young again and held her in my arms. So as we've prepared it for exports, what has been the central emotional core of the Western cultural export. If I may read to you another poem, this one I have to apologize for slightly because it has to do with a terrible sexually contagious disease and we live in a time when there's a tremendous and very serious version of that. So this was written back in the days when, uh, when one could be a little more frivolous with that subject. So I apologize for the fact that it's indiscreet. But I'm reading it not so much as a commentary on syphilis, but as I think the poet wrote it, namely as a metaphor for the spread of romantic passion. Because Toynbee has alerted us to the exportable culture and what's at the core of it. So this is Richard Wilbur, and he writes this, Each nation guards its native land with cannon and with sentry. Inspectors look for contraband at every port of entry. Yet nothing can prevent the spread of love's divine disease. It rounds the world from bed to bed as pretty as you please. Men worship Venus everywhere, as plainly may be seen. These decorations which I wear are nobler than the Corps de Guerre and gained in service of our fair and universal queen. Well, as a metaphor... It's a powerful one. Modern commentators have said we can continue to call the Western culture Western for convenience sake, but it's no longer Western. It is eliminating all its competitors. And we have those stout-hearted souls who think it's eliminating all its competitors because it offers free enterprise. <laughs> Not so. It's eliminating all its competitors because at the heart of it, is romance mythology. A very, very powerful aberration. Let's take another look at our culture from a psychological point of view. Carl Jung, writing in the lazy, hazy days of the early 50s, wrote, our civilization, he put it, it wasn't so, so lazy and hazy that he didn't put the word civilization in quotation mark. Our civilization has turned out to be a very doubtful proposition a distinct falling away from the lofty ideal of Christianity, and in consequence the projections have largely fallen away from the divine figures and, and have necessarily settled in the human sphere. This is understandable, since the, quote, enlightened intellect cannot imagine anything greater than man, except those ten gods with totalitarian pretensions. The lapsed projections have a disturbing effect on human relationships and, and wreck at least a quarter of the marriages. One longs for the days when it only wrecked a quarter of the marriages. But as I say, this is written in the 50s. James Hillman, along the same line, uh, Hillman is a, started out as a Jungian and ended up as his own man, I guess. Anyway, he, he wrote this. 
What people expect of mothers, fathers, teachers, and friends, and lovers is far beyond the ability of personal human beings. People ask that ar archetypal qualities be present in each other, which in other cultures are present only in gods and goddesses. Now, this pr produces a, a very alive and interesting sociodrama, but it is the source of endless woe and confusion in the world. But on the other hand, a culture whose constituent event is, in mythological terms, the incarnation of the deity, perhaps is destined to reach this impact. The gods have come down into the human realm. If that is the divine impulse, if the incarnation is the divine impulse, speaking mythologically, uh, we might not be all that far off track, even though it's a terrible state of affairs in terms of just the social order. See. For the purpose of just engaging our imagination, we think that some rendition of sexual attraction has replaced Christian religion as the, as the center of gravity of Western culture. What relationship does the, the usurper have to the rightful heir? What relationship does that passionate romantic mythology have to the Christian religion which it replaced at the center of the cultural enterprise? That's the big question. And it is a descendant of the question that Dante asked himself his whole life. I want to read a little passage from a book called The Physiology of Faith by John Dixon. By the way, you know, uh, Joseph Campbell in his book, uh, The Creative Mythology, refers to what he calls the incongruity of credo and libido credo being creedal formulation of a religious tradition. And Joe Campbell talks about the incongruity of credo and libido. And the question, of course, is, is there a fundamental incongruity? There is unquestionably a tension, but is there an incongruity? Well, here's what John Dixon writes. In magnificent detail, the church takes up human life into its ritual, shapes it, places it in the context of the sacred community. This church has not yet learned how to use the last of the great human sacramentals, sex. In the sacramentals as presently constituted, human experience is understood almost wholly as social and economic. Sex appears by implication only and grudgingly as part of marriage. In the economy of history, this is as it must be. Sex is a fearful power. Sex is and always will be a sacrament, but it is not in itself a Christian sacrament, a carrier of the image of Christ, the Christ paradigm. When the mind of the church has generated from its faithful life a metaphysics and an epistemology for the true reception of this great sacrament, then it can be received safely into wholeness. Well, I would suggest to you that Dante is the first of a few great ones who have begun that process. I think of this episode in the 10th chapter of the book of Acts where Peter has a vision the vision is that he must eat this food, which is, by the Jewish dietary standards, defiled. 
And he's told in the vision that nothing is defiled. Eat it. And it is a source of the great awakening of Peter, the great transformation of Peter, I should say the great post-resurrectional transformation of Peter. Sudden opening up of what religion means when he's told nothing is defiled. This too must be caught up in it. Well, this question about whether or not there's a relationship between the usurper and the rightful heir caused me to want to go back just for a moment and touch on the New Testament text briefly. And I've I've chosen almost at random a couple of things out of the Gospel of John. So we want to see, is there a relationship between what has taken over as the central cultural, as the core of the culture, Romantic mythology, that is to say the functional center of the culture, and what was previously the functional center and still remains the nominal center, namely the religion per se. I always think of these those lines from Yeats, my, some of my favorite lines in Yeats. He's talking about a friend of his, and he says, Two thoughts were so mixed up I could not tell whether of her or God he thought the most. Yet think that his mind's eye, when upward turned, on one sole image fell, and that a slight companionable ghost, wild with divinity, so lit up the whole immense miraculous house the Bible promised us that seemed a goldfish swimming in a bowl. Two thoughts were so mixed up he could not tell whether of her or God he thought the most. Someone in that state of confusion is right on time for the 20th century. Well, in the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John is the Gospel of love. Jesus, the John and I, Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. In the 13th chapter of John, Jesus says, I am giving you a new commandment. Now, we've heard this so often, you know, we don't register it. I'm giving you a new commandment, not even the two that we get in the synoptic, much less the ten that we got in older tradition. I'm giving you a new commandment. Now, what's a new commandment mean? Not a rule, not a regulation, a new commandment, a new strategy. If we're talking about the fundamental transformation of human experience, if we're talking about the central shifting of consciousness on this planet, this gospel says that John and nine Jesus. Now John took a lot. John put a lot of, into the mouth of Jesus, but he he put it there based on the insight that was already there, the impulse that was already there. The John and nine Jesus says, "I give you a new commandment. Are you ready for this? Sit down, folks." I think that's why he had them, he told them while they were eating. I give you a new commandment, love one another. And they're sitting there waiting, you know, thinking, love one another. This is not a piece of sentimentality. It's not an advice to those who want to be nice. He hadn't come into the world, you know, to teach people to be nice. A new commandment. You want to have your world turned upside down and come into reality? Here's how you do it. Love one another. You've got to be kidding. They're, they're el- elbowing each other saying, is he kidding? Is there more to it than that? Well, there was a little bit more to it than that. As I have loved you. Well, that's a distinction with a difference. Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. A love that is an arousal, an awakening, a verification, an authentication, a conversion, a love that is transforming in that way. And the formula was, Jesus said, God loved me, and from that I have the capacity to love you, 
in such a way that you will come alive and therefore you have the... It's like a great, huge cosmic chain letter. You turn around and do it to somebody else. And that will empower them to turn around and likewise, and likewise, and likewise. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Only the loved one, only the one who has been loved can love with efficient selflessness to cause a real awakening. Somebody else. In the letter of 1 John, which comes out of that same highly fermenting John 9 community, the author says, everyone who loves knows God. Well, you are saying to yourself, but that's all agape, isn't it? Some of you may know the, these distinctions that are made. In Greek, there are, uh, New Testament is written in Greek, and in Greek, uh, there are a number of words for love. There's eros, or its derivative. There's philane, or philio, and its derivatives. There's, there's agape, agapon, and its derivatives, and others. And the New Testament has a distinct preference, almost exclusive preference, for agape as the word. People have looked at this and drawn the conclusion that we're talking about a particular kind of love. I think these researches into it have been helpful. C.S. Lewis wrote a great book called The Four Loves and so on. And, uh, and to see love in, a, in, in its various manifestations, I think, is a very helpful thing. But something has crept into that study, which is that agape, as a form of love, has been neutered, if I can put it that way, has been sanitized, has been so distinguished from something that might be involved with, say, hormones, that it's a little too heady. So it's interesting to learn, with some more recent research into things, that from about the 4th century B.C. forward, there was virtually no distinction in terms of the meaning of the words in Greek. Eros, agape, philane, all meant love. And each meant all the various kinds of love and so on. So they don't have that kind of distinction that they have, has been given them. Well, why is it then that the New Testament uses agape almost exclusively? Well, the reason is not far to find. First of all, the reason they don't use Eros is because Eros was the name of a pagan god. It would be very indiscreet to use the name of a pagan god to refer to what was a Judeo-Christian reality. could not be done. So that Eros is ruled out, not because it has sexual connotations at all, but because it's the name of a pagan god. Philane, which is used in the New Testament, but sparingly, has another complication with it, and that is Philane comes from the word for to kiss. It's the word used in the, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, often is used for kissing. It's the word in the New Testament used for when, Jesus, when Judas kisses Jesus in the garden. So it, comes from, it means love, but it comes from the word for to kiss. But it had an echo, it, had, it sounded like, the verb for to make pregnant. And so it had become a kind of euphemism occasionally. 
And even if somebody was trying to write something that was not a euphemism, they tended to steer away from filane because you could, without realizing it, slip into some kind of double entendre so that what was written as a serious piece of writing would suddenly cause guffaws in the audience. So people stayed away from it. So, what's left? Agape. Agape is used in the New Testament. What does it prove? That we're talking about a love that doesn't relate to any of these other things? No. Further, and really, I think, final proof of this is the Septuagint, which is the Greek Old Testament, also favors the word agape and uses it widely to cover all kinds of loves. I'll just give you a little sample. It's used in Genesis to refer to Abraham's love for Isaac. It's, it's used to refer to Isaac's conjugal love for Rebekah. It is used for Hosea's love for the whore. Okay? And it is used in 2 Samuel when Amnon, Amnon says, I am in love with Tamar, immediately after which he rapes her. The word is agape, for the kind of, quote, love that rapes. She was not particularly in love with him. As a matter of fact, it was an incestuous rape at that. Agape. All of this to say, what the New Testament is talking about, there are no definitive boundaries that separate it from all the meanings of love. Love is love in all its confusion. Now, we've tried to keep it distinct, but it's not working. I'll offer this as a, as a kind of a summary of, of things. I'd, I'd like to remember to come back to this over the weeks ahead. Those who try to separate consciousness from love and those who try to separate love from sexuality have had limited success. Those who try to separate consciousness from love and those who try to separate love from sexuality have had limited success. Now, those who try to make those separations do so because it's a lot cleaner. It's a lot tidier to be able to talk about consciousness than it is to talk about love. And it's a lot tidier to talk about love than it is to bring in sexual implications. But it simply will not tidy up except at the expense of reality. Well, why is it that those who have tried to separate consciousness from love and those who have tried to separate love from sexuality have had only limited success? Shall we look at incest? Incest. We've, I've, I've brought up this primordial subject before, uh, but I'm not proposing here a scientific uh, explanation of anything. I would like to just tell a story, a story which has some scientific bases, but is also just a story. And it would go like this. It's not a it's not a narrative story, but it is a kind of a story. And it go, would go like this. The precondition for consciousness is excess libido. That is to say, libido here meaning psychic energy. The precondition for consciousness is excess libido. Libido, which has been worked loose from the complexity of the instinct and made available for voluntary use. If we're totally instinctive beings, consciousness is completely superfluous. Instinct gets the job done. Why bother with it? Consciousness, as you know, can be a pain in the neck. Why bother with it? Which is a conclusion a number of people in the 20th century have come to and have 
and turn to various pharmacological and other televisual ways of trying to turn it off. It's a tough way to go. So if the instincts are taking care of it, why bother? If consciousness is going to happen, some of that libido has to be made available. The imagination only comes awake when there is excess libido. Consciousness begins with the imagination, of course, and ends with the imagination. It is in, tied up with the imagination completely. And that imagination awakens only when there is excess libido, energy that is not immediately thrust into the business of life. Now, the problem with that is the libido re resides in the instinct. Now, the instincts, if I may say a truism this flatly, the instincts are very good things. They are absolutely essential to us. You don't go messing around with instincts. It turns out, as a matter of fact, that sexuality is the only instinct that can be frustrated over a long enough period of time to produce significant backlog of libido without causing physical damage to the organism. You start frustrating some other instincts and you can get in trouble real fast. Now, I'm not saying frustrating the sexual one doesn't produce some problems too, but least likely to cause physical damage to the organism. We go back into human existence and what we find near the origins of what we call human life is the incest taboo, one of the first social constraints. The question is, there's all, there, the incest taboo is there everywhere. The first explanation for that was, we usually always explain these things backwards. The first explanation was, well, they just understood genetics, and uh, the reason they had the incest taboo is because they didn't want to screw up the genetic line. Quite clearly, the incest taboo had nothing to do with genetics because there were exceptions to it, and the exceptions were the typical exceptions, would be the royal house. Uh, and that's the very place where genetic purity would be needed, you see? So if they had chosen it for practical reasons to keep the genetic line pure, certainly they would have not, not made an exception for the royal line, which is the purity of which is the central concern. But the incest taboo is there from the beginning, everywhere you look. I think for our purposes to see, because we're trying to get back to where we were a few minutes ago, we've just, we're making a little side journey here. For our purposes, I think we can see the incest taboo as doing two things. Thwarting the first erotic desire and creating thereby excess libido available for consciousness. That's one thing. Note what is being thwarted. What is being thwarted, the first erotic desire is to unite sexually with those with whom I am most effectively related, and that is thwarted. Now that is, to use Toynbee's term, big with consequences. Because it forces sexual libido and what some anthropologists have called kinship libido into different tracks. It separates kinship libido from sexual libido and forces them to take on distinct characteristics. And so you have a kind of bifurcation of the instinctive system. Kinship libido and sexuality separate. Now, why is it? Why is it that it's easier to, quote, fall in love with somebody out there someplace? Why is that? 
I suggest in part it goes back to the incest taboo, which makes that primordial distinction between sexuality and kinship. Well, if incest taboo, and it's not the only one, but if the incest taboo plays an important role in the genesis of consciousness, I think it's pretty clear to those who look closely at the matter that consciousness itself always carries a mark of its genesis which is to say that psychologically, archetypally, symbolically, consciousness is both sexual and incestuous. Now, that sounds like an absurd thing to say. I, Particularly on the incestuous part, I won't explore it at all, except to say there are volumes of Carl Jung's writings which deal with it. Robert Stein wrote a book on incest. He said this, the longing to find and unite with the mysterious other half of oneself is a direct consequence of the brother-sister taboo. I would suggest we think of that taboo in a larger sense of mother-child, of, of mother, father-child as well. The longing to find and unite with the mysterious other half of oneself is a direct consequence of the brother-sister taboo. This uniquely human attribute is responsible for man's eternal fascination with all matters concerning love, sex, and the human connection. It has helped transform the sexual drive from a purely biological urge to the supreme instrument of man's psychological development. Now, I don't know how many of you knew when you came in here today that sexual drive is the supreme instrument of man's psychological development, but now you know it. I don't know what, how this is going to change the rest of your day, but... Or at least that's what Robert Stein says, uh, and he makes a pretty good case for it. Two assumptions we'll have to deal with. One is the assumption, now we're moving back into romance here a little bit, although we're going to save most of that for next week. One assumption is that falling in love is a delusion arising like vapor off the steamy swamp of biological necessity. That falling in love is a delusion arising like vapor off of the steamy swamp of biological necessity. The other assumption is that it's merely a projection of some unconscious aspect of my own being. So we have to question both of those assumptions. One is that it can be written off biologically, and the other is it can be written off psychologically. And it would be a very tidy world if one or the other of those could be true. From lower to higher organisms, the quantity of offspring decreases. I don't know if you've noticed. Fish have lots, ants, lots, and so on. From lower to higher organisms the quantity of offspring decreases. From lower to higher organism, the power of sexual attraction increases. These same fish that produce millions, they sometimes do it by having the poor male come along and, and spew his sperm around, hoping that somewhere on the bottom of the seabed there'll be some eggs there. And he must get something out of it. Lower to higher organisms, Reproduction decreases. From lower to higher organisms, sexual attraction increases. If you measure lower to higher in terms of quote-unquote consciousness, you could then say consciousness is in inverse proportion to reproduction and in direct proportion to sexual attraction. And then you would be on to an interesting study. Consciousness is in inverse proportion to reproduction and in direct proportion to sexual attraction. And to this you might add, that romantic passion, which is a curious and virulent strain of sexual attraction, which we'll talk more about next week, 
romantic passion is biologically neutral, at least insofar as this is true of it. The most potent versions of it, the most potent versions of romantic passion, have as often produced celibacy and suicide as they have produced parenting. So it has marginal biological implications. Well, it can't be written off biologically. Can it be written off psychologically? Is the falling in love experience simply a projection of some aspect of my being? Now, I have learned too much from Carl Jung uh, to be to want to be cavalier with his work. I don't mind being cavalier with the Jungians, however. I, you know, Jung said he was happy to be Jung and not a Jungian. We will need, as we go through life, Carl Jung's insight, which uses the metaphor of projection. Let's not forget it is a metaphor that he has used. Jung's metaphor of projection is very helpful for understanding us humans, I think. But what I'd like to do for most of the remainder of the day is to try to supply a, a corrective to it. And what I want to do is to quote to you uh, and reflect on, but largely quote to you, from a work by Vladimir Solovyov, who's a Russian, 19th century Russian philosopher and poet and mystic, friend of Dostoevsky's, who wrote a little book called The Meaning of Love. And I want just to bring his reflections in for us today. But before I do that, let let me begin by sort of calling up on the screen, as it were, this thing, again, we've talked about before, Ernest Becker's idea. Ernest Becker wrote this book called The Denial of Death, which is a very important book, I think. In there, he's, he talks of what he calls the twin ontological motives, which are to affirm myself and to surrender myself to something larger than myself. And that those are the two, for him, fundamental urges which are basic to us human beings. And they are at war with one another, in a way, causing confusion, causing us to go in a kind of cycle sometimes. Uh, we get on a kind of teeter-totter with regard to these two ontological impulses, to affirm myself and to surrender myself. With that as a kind of background, we might say that the problem with us humans, if, if we can't call it the ego, ego has an executive function, it is egocentricity or egoism. The problem is, for which there is a woeful plethora of evidence, the problem is that attempts to constrain egoism often have resulted in a constraint of personality. And the cavalier decision to let her rip for the sake of personality has often created just the worst kind of inflated egoism. And so we have this problem as human beings. Romantic love has a very interesting capacity in that regard. Namely, it shatters our egoism and enhances our personality. It makes us come alive in terms of our larger personality, and it shatters our egoism. I want to read to you, Solovyov says that. He says it a little more philosophically and a little better than I do. But I'll, I'll read to you what he says about it. Maybe we want to think about this. Metaphysical, physical, historical, and social conditions in human existence modify and mitigate our egoism in all ways, placing powerful and varied obstacles in the way of its manifestation in a pure form and in all its terrible consequences. He's talking about rules and regulations and taboos and, and all the rest of it. But all this complicated system of hindrances and correctives foreordained by providence and realized by natural history, leaves untouched the very basis of egoism, which perpetually peeps out from under cover of personal and public morality, 
and on occasion manifests itself with perfect distinctness. I keep. I always think of that story. I'm going to pause here to tell this little story of the Zen master who goes. The, the country Zen master. There's always the country Zen master and the city Zen master. And the country Zen master is out in his hermitage, and the city Zen master comes to meet him, and they quietly sit down to have tea. And the, uh, while they're having tea, the, the uh, there's a tiger that roars, and the city Zen master jumps, and the country Zen master calmly sits there and looks at him and says. You still have it, don't you? And he feels totally shamed by the fact that he has shown some self-regard. So the country's Zen master gets up to go prepare more tea. And the city's Zen master writes a little note that says, The Buddha. And he puts the note on the little stone that the country's Zen master has been sitting on. He comes back with the tea. And he looks at this little sign that says, The Buddha. And he pauses there for a minute. And the city guy says, It's still with you, isn't it? That's what Salovio is saying. We can cover it over and cover it over and cover it over, but it's it's not a question of confining it, but of finally transforming it. So then he says, there is only one power which can from within undermine egoism at the root and really does undermine it, namely love, chiefly sexual love. The falsehood and evil of egoism consists in the exclusive acknowledgement of absolute significance for oneself and the denial of it for others. The point he's making, and he makes it elsewhere, is chief evil of egoism is not that I have that it causes me to regard myself as absolutely significant. Because I am absolutely significant, so are you. The problem with egoism is that I don't regard others as absolutely significant as well. It's an exclusive regard. So then he says, reason shows us that this is unfounded and unjust, but simply by the facts, love directly abrogates such an unjust relation, compelling us not by abstract consciousness, but by an internal emotion and the will of life to recognize for ourselves the absolute significance of another, recognizing in love the truth of another, not abstractly, but essentially, transferring indeed the center of our life beyond the limits of our empirical personality. We by so doing reveal and realize our own real truth, our own absolute significance, which consists just in our capacity to transcend the borders of our factual phenomenal being, in our capacity to live not only in ourselves, but also in another. Well, let me give you a poetic version of the same thing. And again, I would like to quote to you Theodore Rethke. Arethke was an intensely conscious person, haunted man in many ways, driven man, and he has some poems that are very powerful about having something break into that and suddenly being in the presence of the other. And I think that's what Slovyov is talking about. Well, here's Theodore Rethke's version of just what Slovyov is talking about. I kissed her moving mouth, her swart, hilarious skin, she breaks my breath in half. She frolics like a beast. And I dance round and round, a fond and foolish man, and see and suffer myself in another being at last. She breaks my breath in half. Have you ever? Can you imagine saying it better than that? She breaks my breath in half. I dance round and round a fond and foolish man and see and suffer myself in another being at last. 
Theodore Reski. That is what Solovyov says is the genius of romantic love. It has the power to break through that egoism and exalt the personality at the same moment. And that's what happens to the lover. What happens to the beloved? Solovyov says, the true significance of love consists not in the simple experience of this feeling, but in what is accomplished by means of it, in the act of love. For love, it, it is insufficient to feel for itself the absolute significance of the beloved, but it is necessary to effectively impart or communicate this significance to the other. So, the feeling of that significance for the other must then be communicated in some important way. We communicate to each other our profound significance. As Martin Buber says, we all, in our great need to be confirmed, to be, to be validated, uh, look out on the world anxiously awaiting a yes from someone else, a yes that will give us our lives. So I will read to you a reading from that great probing philosophical work called The Velveteen Rabbit by Marjorie Williams. What is real? asked the rabbit one day when they were lying side by side near the nursery fender before Nana came to tidy the room. Does it mean having things that buzz inside you and a stick-out handle? Real isn't how you're made, said the skin horse. It's a thing that happens to you. When a child loves you for a long, long time, not just to play with, but really loves you, then you become real. Does it hurt? asked the rabbit. Sometimes, said the skin horse, for he was always truthful, when you're real, you don't mind being hurt. Does it happen all at once, like being wound up, he asked, or bit by bit? It doesn't happen all at once, said the skin horse. You become. It takes a long time. That's why it doesn't often happen to people who break easily or have sharp edges or who have to be carefully kept. Generally, by the time you are real, most of your hair has been loved off and your eyes drop out and you get loose in the joints and very shabby. But these things don't matter at all because once you are real, you can't be ugly except to people who don't understand. I suppose you are real said the rabbit, and then he wished he had not said it, for he thought the skin horse might be sensitive, but the skin horse only smiled. The boy's uncle made me real, he said. That was a great many years ago. But once you're real, you can't become unreal again. It lasts for always. The rabbit sighed. He thought it would be a long time before this magic called real happened to him. And we in 1986 all sigh with the rabbits. It's a great cosmic sigh because we become real or we love, as my grandmother used to say, in fits and starts. And fits and starts won't do. Solovyov says, It is well known to everyone that in love there inevitably exists a special idealization of the beloved which presents itself to the lover in a completely different light from that in which outsiders see it. And if for him too this light of love quickly disappears... Yet does it follow from this that it was false, that it was only a subjective illusion? The implication that he never follows up is that perhaps that's the one moment in our life when we actually do see someone for who they essentially are, 
that is to say, who they really are, however far that is from their own experience. The poet, English poet Coventry Patmore, about the time Solovio was writing his book, was writing a poem on married love. A little section of it goes like this. Love wakes men once a lifetime each, and they lift their heavy lids and look, and lo, what one sweet page can teach, they read with joy, then shut the book. And some give thanks and some blaspheme and most forget, but either way, that and the child's unheeded dream is all the light of all their day. Lo, what one sweet page can teach, they read with joy, then shut the book. And some give thanks and some blaspheme and most forget. The reason we want to read Dante is because he not only read the book, he wrote it. It goes on from page one. And page one is such a thrill that we usually just close it until we can't stand it anymore. And we open it up and read page one again, close it, and again and again and again and again. Slovyov says, Hardly does the primordial intense emotion of love succeed in showing us a region of another better reality with another principle and law of life than we straightway strive to avail ourselves of the rise in energy which is the consequence of this revelation not to advance further whither it summons us, but only to take root more firmly and to become settled more steadfastly in that former base reality above which love has just raised us. It's as though desire awakens in us and then we're faced shortly with a, a choice whether it will simply become appetite or become, in a larger sense, longing. It starts out as desire and then we come to that fork in the road. If it's appetites, appetites can be reasonably easily satisfied. But if it becomes longing, then we're on into page three, four, five, six, and so on of the book. Solovyov says, putting the physical union in the primary place and bereaving it in that way of its human meaning, reducing it to its animal meaning, makes love not only powerless against death, but itself inevitably becomes the moral grave of love long before the physical grave takes the lovers. He is not proposing a, a celibate universe, by the way. He is saying to put the physical union in the primary place, that is to say to, to see that as the goal of that experience, is to miss its larger ontological and cosmic implications. The power of love passing into the world, transforming and spiritualizing the form of external phenomena, reveals to us its objective might, and after that it's up to us. We ourselves must understand this revelation and take advantage of it so that it may not remain a passing and enigmatic flash of some mystery. After that, it's up to us. For the beginning, this is Solovyov continuing, for the beginning, passive receptivity of feeling suffices, but subsequently active faith is necessary. With moral effort and hard work, to keep for oneself, to strengthen and develop this gift of luminous and creative love, in order, through it, to incarnate in oneself and in another the image of God. There we are. Come full circle. We start out looking at the void left by the absence of the religious tradition, a void filled in the exportable culture by romantic love, and Solovyov then says that about the implications of romantic love. I'll read it again. For the beginning, passive receptivity of feeling suffices, 
But subsequently, active faith is necessary with moral effort and hard work to keep for oneself, to strengthen and develop this gift of luminous and creative love in order, through it, to incarnate in oneself and in another the image of God. If inevitably and without our own volition the existent idealization of love reveals to us through empirical appearance a distinct ideal image of the Beloved, this is not, of course, only that we might delight in it. In other words, why do we get suddenly see this person and see this person with halos and music and, you know, the whole thing becomes orchestrated in some grand vision? Why? Well, not so that we might delight in it, but that by power of true faith, active imagination, and real creativeness, we might transform, in accordance with this true exemplar, the reality that does not conform to it. That is the glimpse of, of the possibility. And then the rest of life is working towards it. The matter of true love is above all based on faith. The root meaning of love, as has already been shown, consists in the acknowledgement of absolute significance for another human being. But this being, in its empirical being, as the subject of real sensuous perception, does not have absolute significance. It is imperfect in its worth and transient in its existence. Consequently, we can assert absolute significance of it only by faith, which is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. A little Pauline reference there. To what does faith relate in the present instance? What does it strictly mean to believe in the absolute? And what is the same thing, everlasting significance of this individual person? Solovyov continues, The object of our believing love is necessarily to be distinguished from the empirical object of our instinctive love, though it is also inseparably bound up with it. It is one and the same person in two distinguishable aspects or in two different spheres of being, the ideal and the real. The first is as yet only an idea. By steadfast, believing, and insightful love, however, we know that this idea is not an arbitrary fiction of our own, but that it expresses the truth of the person. Only a truth is yet not fully realized in the sphere of external real phenomenon. Now, why does that surprise us? We who have been sustained on Jungian idea of projection realize, as Hillman said in that quote I shared with you, that what we are seeing in this other person is a god or a goddess. Well, the heart of the religious tradition tells us that's what's there, sons and daughters of God bearers of our loaded divinity. So when we, when something happens to us and the scales fall off long enough for us to see it in somebody else, even though we have to admit that it is commingled with our own projection of our own godness, let's not write it off as a kind of psychological hiccup. That is the great possibility of human life. I want to read the tail end of the a little section from the tail end of the Velveteen Rabbit story, just to remind us that the Velveteen Rabbit, the transformation there is progressive, that is to say there are several stages in it. This is towards the end of the book. Uh, little Rabbit, she said, don't you know who I am? The rabbit looked at her, and it seemed to him that he had seen her face before, but he couldn't think where. I'm the nursery magic fairy, she said. I take care of all the playthings that the children have loved. When they're old and worn out and the children don't need them anymore, then I come and take them away with me and turn them into real. Wasn't I real before? 
asked the little rabbit. You were real to the boy, the fairy said, because he loved you. Now you shall be real to everyone. And she held the little rabbit close in her arms and flew with him into the wood. You were real to the boy. Now you shall be real to everyone. Somebody once said, we never forget our first love and our first teacher. And the reason, reason for that, I think, is because those are the people who first realized us, first touched that core in us and made it come alive. And then it may be years and years later that we become real for everybody else. But there's always somebody early on that sees us and helps us realize ourselves initially. And Solovyov said this is an opportunity that presents itself in romantic love uniquely. It's great power, great responsibility. Okay, here's the last quote from Solovyov. This emotion of love comes and passes away, but the faith of love abides. But in order for the faith to be a living faith, it must set itself steadfastly against that existing society where meaningless chance builds its dominion upon the play of animal passions and still worse, human passions. Against these hostile powers, believing faith is only one defensible weapon, endurance to the end. To earn its bliss, it must take up its cross. In our materialistic society, it is impossible to preserve true love unless we understand and accept it as a moral achievement. To earn its bliss, it must take up its cross. That's, that's the oldest story going. Endurance to the end. You know, Plato's Symposium, which I reread thinking I would pick up all kinds of little gems to share with you on the subject of love. Plato's Symposium is a drinking party, and Plato... It was all the guys hanging around drinking, talking about love. Fortunately, they were preoccupied with homosexual love, so it wasn't uh, too much of an aberration that there were no women there. But anyway, Plato finally overwhelms them all because he loved about he learned about love from Diotima. And what he learned was that each love takes you so far, and then you realize that what you're really after is something more than that. And so you kind of climb this ladder of love until you get to divine love. See? which is all fine, except in, involves this little trail of broken hearts, you see. And to get to the next rung, you have to leave the rung below. It has that kind of, that's bigger than this, and I've got to be on it. And, and what Solovyov says is that it is both a journey and an abiding. What's his name? Uh, Guggenbull Craig wrote the book on marriage, marriage, dead or alive. Is, is marriage a welfare institution or a soteriological institution? That soteriological means salvation. Is marriage an institution like the monastery, which has to do with the salvation of those people who are part of the institution and the ultimate salvation of the world? Or is it a welfare institution, which has to do with getting the food on the table and the kids raised? And the his point is that must serve both those functions occasionally, but that it is fundamentally a soteriological institution. And having failed to recognize it as such, we have uh, eliminated its great potential in the human drama. Well, I'll just conclude with this one last sentence from Solovyov. One can restore formatively the image of God in the living object of his love only when at the same time he also restores that image in himself. One can only restore formatively the image of God in the living object of his love 
only when at the same time he also restores that image in himself. Slavyov's vision, like Buber's, like the author of the Gospel of John, is fundamentally relational, fundamentally relational. Buber says, God is that which goes between.